the silver screen But the film is a sad thing for Hello and welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we discuss a year of film history every week-ish, starting from 1895, the dawn of cinema. Uh, This week we're talking about 1918. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I am a film projectionist and joining me as always is... I am Glenn Covell. I am a filmmaker and the other host. Yes. (laughs) Uh, How's it going, Glenn? What's up? It's going, you know, um, things are, things are kind of happening, I guess. Yeah, you made a short film. I did. I think we talked about that last episode, whenever that was that we recorded it. Um, You you submitted some, you did some festivals though? Yeah, same, no change. I still don't know if it got into any, so. (laughs) What's going on with you personally then? (laughs) Um, I'm working from home and I'm uh, listening to a lot of other podcasts besides this one. And, uh, I don't know, it's kind of walk around the neighborhood trying to be outside now that the weather is getting nicer in springtime. Hmm. Not much else. Going to, uh, movie trivia at the Nighthawk Prospect Park, which is fun. Shout out to- You live in New York City. To them. I do. I do (laughs) live in- I live in the borough of Brooklyn. Like the- (laughs) like the pretentious asshole that I am. Uh, I live in Denver, Colorado now, which- I can partially blame for why it's, uh, you know, our, our episodes came out so late uh, at, uh, as they <laughs> as they did. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I'm I am kind of transitioning to become maybe not a projectionist soon. Um, oh, but I don't know. I feel like I'll still be a projectionist in my heart. So and in it kind spirit. of rolls off the tongue yeah. for the infra- intro a little better. So. <laughs> Once you're a projectionist, you're always a projectionist. It's It's true. It's true. Yeah, but I might start working at uh, uh, the Department of Transportation. uh, I mean... A government job. Not much more exciting than that. (laughs) It's the the nonstop, fast-paced world of repairing uh, traffic lights. Hell yeah. Uh, (laughs) Which I'm actually pretty excited for. Anyway, um... Uh, I want y'all listening to know that uh, you can, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, go ahead, you're doing a bang up job. Uh, if you uh, are watching this, listening to this on a podcast, you can watch it on YouTube, which, of course, there's nothing wrong with listening to it as a podcast. But uh, on YouTube, we will play the movies along while we're ta- uh, with, with our, our talking about them. Uh, and you get to kind of experience a little bit of that. It's copyright free, so we can do whatever we want. And uh, for both YouTube and podcast people, we're going to make a playlist of, uh, of videos on our channel uh, that is all the movies that we'll be talking about, and you can watch them on YouTube right there uh, if you want to watch them with music or separately from our yammering, you know. With that being said, uh, why do you like to start off our episodes with a little bit of context for what was happening in the year that we're talking about? So Glenn, why don't you take it away with the news of the year? The news of the year, 1918. Influenza strikes the world. Millions lost in the deadly pandemic. Daylight savings time begins. The Red Baron is shot down and killed during an air battle near the Somme River. Women gain the right to vote in the UK and Canada. The Romanovs are shot and killed. Kaiser Wilhelm abdicates the throne. The Great War ends with the shining of the November 11th armistice. 
and like a bunch of other stuff that is probably somewhat important but you know what 1918 was a wild year so we needed to keep it brief it was and we're talking about a lot of movies in this episode yes we are we got we got to keep this this ball rolling let's get this ball rolling what do you want to start with glenn uh i think we should start with what are our different segments um we should probably start with um shorts i guess we didn't do any movie serials for 1918 because there were so many other movies to watch yeah we could have watched judex which is supposed to be good but no yeah i'm sure it's awesome and i would like to watch it someday yeah. but it is <laughs> is too much um and we've covered a lot of the other uh sort of french adventure serials so so this is our segment called one week one reel and most of these are not one reel at this point but oh uh... no we are we are well beyond the one reel film um <laughs> they are several reels uh but it is a, a catchy title so we're keeping it so uh we have often uh glanced over in a lot of ways passed over uh a lot of uh the slapstick comedians that we that are kind of like the most iconic silent film stars mm. um and so we're trying to rectify that by uh you want to start off with harold lloyd sure yeah uh because we haven't done any of his stuff yet uh and so this this week we watched uh harold lloyd's take a chance I definitely was very familiar with Harold Lloyd, but I don't think I've ever actually watched very many of his movies. I was not familiar with him, like, at all. And I was so unfamiliar with him that I thought his iconic hanging from a clock scene was actually, like, Buster Keaton, you know? <laughs> mm. Yeah, it is sort of, I think, until you really kind of get into it, um, I think a lot of these kind of silent film comedy stars can can blend together a little bit they're all wearing their straw butter hats and you know jumping trains and hanging off clocks and things um and i i definitely have kind of suffered a bit from the uh i guess just sort of narrow view of this entire like time period and subgenre of of movies so i hadn't seen a lot of uh uh Arbuckle, I hadn't seen a lot of Buster Keaton. I hadn't seen a lot of Harold Lloyd. I'd really only seen a couple of Chaplin movies, and that was about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to get into the rest of these. And this is a good uh, a good little intro, I guess. It seems fairly um, exemplary of the types of movies that Harold Lloyd is making at this time. You've seen other Harold Lloyd stuff? No. Okay. <laughs> you're just familiar with him as a guy <laughs> i'm familiar with him hanging off the clock from safety lask is, right. is the big one you know gotcha <laughs> harold lloyd started out being a bit of a chaplain impersonator so he had a character named lonesome luke which mm. he played in uh 1916 or so uh when he was closer to when he was uh getting started 1915 and 1916 and he was like literally dressed up like chaplain like the tramp outfit um and doing more of a chaplain bit um but he developed his own character who i guess didn't necessarily have a name uh but he called glasses uh because of his iconic round glasses right uh and he debuted him uh in the previous year in 1917 but then this is uh one of his more famous movies from uh the more established glasses era uh what do you think of this character of his it is kind of a, a quintessential or a sort of like very classical silent movie slapstick character, I guess. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I do kind of feel like, uh, having watched, you know, some other silent comedies from the last couple of years, Take a Chance has a sort of madcap energy that is, I cer- I think certainly compared to what Chaplin has been doing, uh, sort of sticks out in that in that regard. Um, it has a bit more of focus on kind of like outrageous stunts and and wild gags as opposed to the sort of like complex choreography and like pathos of of the last couple Chaplin movies yeah though i will say that like this you know i think madcap energy is a good way to put it because i felt like in in the stunts and in the motion and in the cinematography too this was like a lot more energetic than a lot of other stuff that i've seen it's like less of a static camera situation. It's more speed ramping. It's less um, uh, kind of a thing happens in a frame and somebody kind of mugs for a while. It's like full of motion and and quicker cuts. I felt like yeah, yeah. There's definitely and it's. I mean, this is not the first movie to feel that way. Like there's been a lot of uh, was it Millie's uh, punctured romance. Was that what it was? Yeah. Um, that had a, a very strong sort of like madcap energy. I think, I think a lot of the, uh, Arbuckle shorts have, have a kind of a similar energy to, to this mm-hmm. also. Um, but it's, it's interesting to see sort of the different, the different approaches that these, di- that the different kind of silent film comedy people are taking and yeah. how they're all coming from a very similar place, but they're all starting to kind of find their lane a bit, which is interesting to see play out uh as we go along yeah i think he's established himself as a different type of person than the Mm -hmm. way that that than chaplin is like his character seems like more of like a human person instead of like a cartoon (laughs) of a person you know uh compared to like a chaplin or or an arbuckle i feel like he like is a guy who speaks to people and doesn't just like kind of twirl his you know twiddle his mustache back and forth he, and he's a faces. bit less he, he's he's a bit less pantomime he acts more like an actual person would in a real situation as opposed yeah. to yeah the the chaplain thing it is kind of funny to think about that the like glasses character and the glasses look and like his hair and things like that or when he did that it was just like i'm just gonna wear glasses but now it's like oh it's like an iconic look you know it's sort of like yeah. it's sort of like uh like the tramp also he's like yeah he's wore a hat and big shoes it's like not you know, he just like <laughs> came up with it one day. It's like I don't know how much thought they were necessarily putting into these sort of uh, these like looks that they were establishing that they would kind of carry on with uh, for the rest of their careers, pretty much. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, a lot of sitting in liquids in this movie. That's a, a big a big gag. They like that one a lot. I feel like this has callbacks to a lot of very early silent comedy in a lot of ways. There's people in barrels rolling down hills yeah which is uh, a a weirdly really big trend in silent comedies like yeah (laughs) so many barrels uh there's uh, a scene where a lot of cops chase one guy in a a kind of zany way like dozens of cops yeah um and there's also a a sticky glue thing on the ground uh, yeah uh which are all just elise guy blache late 1890s you know pretty much yeah yeah, the, the, it's true. All, I think all of those are in at least Guy Blaché movies, especially the barrels. I can't even describe the plot. It's like 
a lot of stuff it's, happens. It's not, and it, it's yeah, just... it's like these <laughs> movies do not even have plots in the traditional sense. They are very much just like a bunch of things happen. Yeah. <laughs> and th- this one especially. Like this one is, I think, even more plotless than a lot of the other ones that, yeah. that we've been watching. So you want to move on to uh, another one? Uh, maybe The Cook by uh, Fatty Arbuckle and Buster Keaton? Yeah, that makes sense to talk about next. Um, this one has a, a, a little bit more of a plot, but even then it's still like, there is a cook and hijinks happen. Yeah, it's it's the same as um, most of these Fatty Arbuckle shorts have been, where uh, it, it's the first half is like one gag, one set mm-hmm. piece, where yeah. they ring everything they can, and the second half is a barely related set piece that they ring everything they can out of. Yeah, this one is definitely pretty similar in that regard to the ones that we watched uh, from 1917. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got more, showing off more of uh, uh, Arbuckle's knife skills, which yeah. he's very good at. Like, throwing <laughs> knives up in the air and catching them and, like, throwing them into wood blocks and chopping stuff up. So, yeah, in this, Arbuckle plays the uh, the titular cook, and Buster Keaton plays a, a horny waiter. <laughs> Yes, and it does seem like they really are kind of finding a, a real rhythm as a duo uh, with yeah. this movie, um, or you know, at least among the other ones that they've done. Um, I think they work really well together in this. Yeah, they have a kind of their their sort of personas, I guess, complement each other pretty well, and they're kind of different, differing energies. Mm-hmm. Buster Keaton has such a sort of like dry, sort of under he underplays things a lot. Right. Yeah. Whereas uh, Fatty Arbuckle is like throwing plates up in the air and catching him and like, uh, you know, it's not like even that. stunts. It's like it's like juggling that he loves yeah, to do. You yeah, know? yeah. It's it's just sort of like feats of of daring, just spectacle, I guess. There's also uh, uh, Luke the dog returns in this uh, and does a lot of chasing and biting people. <laughs> And there's like a mean clown that's the through line between between both of the halves of the of this short. Right. Yeah. Uh, who eats a bottle and uh, cuts off a guy's mustache and makes him eat it. Uh, <laughs> there's a prolonged chase where the dog uh, chases him up a ladder. There's there's a bunch of silly spaghetti eating, which feels like a, a like a I don't think I've seen that in a silent comedy up till this point, but it it feels like a classic silent comedy gag. They get a lot of mileage out of different silly ways to eat spaghetti. Yeah, uh, there's like a there like, is a like a whole scene that is just eating spaghetti in different silly ways, <laughs> um, including like a proto Lady in the Tramp situation, but like across a long table, and then the spaghetti pulls so taut. That they uh, that it becomes a clothesline. And they hang the napkins on it. Good, good gag. Good gag. <laughs> I feel like the the sort of structure of these kind of Arbuckle Keaton comedies is a lot of times they will just kind of cut to a joke happening as opposed to sort of coming up with a narrative reason for it to happen. They don't necessarily come out of plot or or story or anything like that. It's just sort of like and now some spaghetti, and now this. <laughs> Uh, these sort of, I guess the, the second, the first part is all in a restaurant and a kitchen, and the second part is uh, kind of at, at the boardwalk. I tried really hard to find out which boardwalk this was, 
hmm. by looking at historical photographs from the 1910s of wow. like California, different California boardwalks, and they all look so similar. I was trying to look like aerial photos, things like, oh, if that's this like Ferris wheel here on this side of the board, like, and I don't know, I think it's Santa Monica, but I, I can't be sure. There were so many huh. boardwalks along like the California coast and like Los Angeles in particular that it's like nearly impossible to tell but it did lead me down a whole rabbit hole of looking up 1918 boardwalk photos (laughs) should we uh flip over chaplin sure i think there is um i hate to give him more time but i do feel like there's kind of more to talk about with these just because they they were a bit more kind of narratively ambitious i guess yeah I feel like his movies are much more focused on telling stories as opposed to just sort of like setting up gags. I think especially now, like his movies have always been a bit slower paced than the other two and more story focused, I guess. But these ones I felt like had um, a lot more of a, I don't know, a lot more of a a sense of continuity and in a way, not as many laughs because uh, it Mm, is you know, it's actually taking time to tell a story in these two. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I do think there's sort of, there's less of a sort of, uh, as, as insanely silly as these movies are, they, they have less of that kind of like madcap, like every, every second a joke is happening kind of energy yeah, that the yeah. other ones tend to go for. These are shoulder arms and a dog's life, by the way. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll talk about a dog's life first because that's kind of I think that's kind of the slightly more traditional or it's a bit more similar to the, the other ones. Mm-hmm. A dog's life was his first film with a new production company, which was First National Pictures, which started out as a theater and distribution company before moving into producing movies. Uh, and they were later bought by Warner Brothers. This is the first time that Chaplin's older brother, half brother, I should say, uh, Sidney Chaplin, appears in one of his movies. Um, they both came up in the, the, like the, uh, the English theater scene. Um, and Sydney, I think after Chaplin moved to, to California and they, they started making movies together. And then, um, later on, Sydney became Charlie's kind of agent and manager. Hmm. Um, but I didn't I'm, know. Any- I'm kind of surprised after being to Charlie Chaplin being like the most famous person in the universe for the last couple of years that uh, he didn't get involved sooner, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think Sydney was in some of the like Keystone movies and things, but always oh, kind of in like a, you know, he's just one of the, the other kind of actors in the background. He never really had a prominent part. He doesn't really have a hugely prominent part in this either. Hmm. Um, but I I thought that was, that that was a, sort of an interesting I, I they mentioned this I think in the uh, the Rob Downey Jr. movie, but I don't remember that movie very well, so um, I didn't really remember this whole thing of like, oh yeah, he had another brother who was also into like slapstick comedy that he made movies with. <laughs> well, I guess we'll be watching that movie for the decade wrap up. So oh sure, yeah, to, yeah. I mean, I feel like the the main kind of thrust of this movie is that he is you know he's a tramp he's a he's poor and he yeah. <laughs> uh as per usual as per usual and um he finds a dog and he has adventures with the dog it is like it's <laughs> like that's just cheating you can't just like put a cute i mean <laughs> fatty arbuckle and and uh buster keaton did that 
this year also but it is like this is a cuter dog put a it is uh put a cute dog in your movie and it's automatically charming and it's just like god damn it (laughs) i I, i'm suddenly very invested in what's happening because this also in um in the cook it's just like oh yeah there's a dog there he like chases people and like does tricks and things this is like really ringing out the like pathos of uh there's a cute dog and it's in trouble and you gotta make sure it's taken care of and it like (laughs) it's it's a it's a scrappy you know um tramp like he is and they're you know living on the streets together yeah it's Um, it's heartfelt in a lot of ways it is Um, yeah but i feel like you know it it's it's very enjoyable to watch but the thing the main things that i left in my notes were like the really good gags in this too um one is one that i really loved and is also dog related and cute is that he a lot of it involves him trying to get into this nightclub uh to get some food or drinks there or whatever and there are no dogs allowed and so uh initially he brings the dog in and gets kicked out and so then he stuffs the entire dog in his pants um (laughs) as you do as you do, as if you're an adventure game character. And um, because he's a tramp and he has a hole in his pants, the dog's the dog's uh, uh, tail sticks out of the hole in the back of his pants and uh, and wags and everyone stares at him. And it's, it's, it's very good. And then I also uh, love that there's, in the club, there's somebody who is singing uh, a kind of sad, beautiful opera song. Um, and everyone in the club starts crying, uh, and then there's a lady who cries so much that it looks like the airplane movie sweat uh, right. gag. Yeah. <laughs> Another fun part of the the tail coming out of his pants is that uh, he walks by a drum, and the the tail starts hitting the drum. Yeah. Um, there are there are so many instances of like just really good physical comedy in these that mm-hmm. I'm just like it's so simple, but. <laughs> um but it, it works really well frequent uh chaplain co-star uh edner Paviance shows up in this as uh a woman who works at the nightclub and her her boss sort of angrily tells her that uh she needs to wink at more of the guests so they'll buy more drinks um and she starts like really aggressively winking at at the tramp and he is just kind of confused by it and she has to tell him i'm flirting <laughs> that was that was really good i thought that she was really funny in that role yeah i wrote down a lot of like gags for this one that it might be not worth just describing one by one just watch the movie i mean i that's the thing that i have that i feel like i have to tell to the listeners of this podcast is uh i don't know how much you're getting about us from us like describing uh, uh slapstick gags yeah uh and i think that our recommendation is that you just sit down and watch these because they're fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one thing I thought of, of this and and several other silent comedies from this uh, this year is that how how much in silent comedies that uh, police are just sort of like default bad guys. Yeah. They're very uh, silent comedies are very a cab movies. <laughs> is what I wrote <laughs> down. Like. A, a pol- like a policeman in a silent comedy is never helpful. That's like, true. Th- they're only yeah. there to like chase people and, and get things wrong and be mean. Yeah, pretty much. 
And I, I think that's kind of funny that there is like, they are like the furthest thing from propaganda possible. They are like anti propaganda. <laughs> yeah. Um, based. I mean, did you have anything else to say on a dog's life? I know it's funny. It's sweet. There's a puppy in it. There's like, <laughs> at the end of the movie, the tramp and and Edna retire to the country, and the Scraps has puppies, and it's it's very. Oh, like, the dog's name is Scraps. I forgot. His name is oh, Scraps. My God. <laughs> There's a title card at the beginning that says uh, Scraps, a thoroughbred mongrel, <laughs> which is a great uh, little intro title card. But yeah, I think uh, I can move on to the other big chaplain short from this year just shoulder arms yeah uh, this one i was somewhat familiar like when i saw this one i was like oh this movie i'd never seen it before but i feel like there's a lot of just like images from it that i oh really recognized yeah it's uh i think it's i think it's really well put together um yeah i think that even more than a dog's life it is telling like a, a story um in, in that it's it's an actual like kind of war adventure story with chaplain gags in the middle mm-hmm. um involving like including like you know him uh uh going out on a on a suicide mission and then like meeting a, a lady in like bombed out france or something like that and it's then really having it is... to like scheme with her to like uh defeat the yeah. germans you know it is at parts of it i'm it is weirdly similar to the movie 1917 but in a much sillier <laughs> yeah. way. Yeah. Um, Silly 1917. Yeah, Edna Proviance is also in this and plays a, 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 a French woman that sort of shows up in a bombed-out house that he's hiding out in. Um, this, I think, is funny that it, it kind of uh, functions as, like, World War One propaganda, kind of, but then I feel like Charlie Chaplin undercuts that a little bit hmm. by with the twist ending. Uh, which is that it was all a dream. <laughs> so yeah, the movie starts with uh, uh, Chaplin, I guess, kind of playing the tramp. I mean, it's his same comic persona. He's not dressed the same, but... Except that he has a, a, a pith helmet, or, or I don't know if that's the right terminology. He has like a, a helmet, an army like helmet. A, a doughboy helmet. His, a doughboy helmet that yeah. like looks like his bowler hat and he uses it right in a very yeah. similar way which is genius i love that <laughs> yeah yeah uh it does start with him signing his name putting out a picture of himself over the title just so we know that uh he is in fact in the movie so like it starts off with him in in i guess boot camp and there's some some sort of like soldier training antics that sort of acts i guess as a framing device because then he goes into a, a tent and falls asleep and we think the rest of the movie is after he wakes up, but it's actually all, all a dream. <laughs> but yeah, we get like a really cool like tracking shot through a trench. There's a lot of focus on like life on the front, and like the minutia yeah. of that, which kind of surprised me that it's like this does sort of function as a a pretty effective like World War One movie, uh, even though it's played as like a big broad comedy which is kind of wild that it's like this war is happening while this right. movie is being yeah. made and it's like <laughs> it's so silly i mean to a degree it's like i think it it does get at, i was surprised how i guess like accurate the depiction of life in the trenches was having seen like the peter jackson documentary they should not like, grow old and how like 
that really focuses a lot on like mm. life in the trench and like what the day to day of that was like. And it's like a lot of those details are in this of like the mud and like bailing. Wa- There's a whole thing where like they're sleeping in, you know, like a dugout sort of room and it floods and they're like trying to sleep as like their beds are floating around and things. That's something that I realized will always impress me is a flooding set. That was also in, uh, right. There was, there was another movie we watched recently that had a flooded set that I was like, ah, flooded sets are always impressive. <laughs> There's a bit where someone's like unwrapping some stinky food, um, and so he puts on a gas mask. That's amazing. I thought that was hilarious. Like stinky cheese, Limburger cheese. Right. It's like, it's like oh, it's a gas mask. And it's like, that's kind of a a dark joke like it's really and then he throws it at the germans yes chemical exactly. warfare with stinky cheese it's like the fact that they're taking the fact that they're using real poison gas in a war that's happening at the time and being like it's like throwing stinky cheese at each other you know i don't know it's <laughs> yeah like, it's 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 chemical warfare but make it silly you know <laughs> yeah so that i guess that kind of surprised me as one how accurate was at like getting the details right but then also playing a lot of those details in a comedic way. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a bit where he's, like, shooting a rifle and, like, dr- making tally marks. And then, like, uh, he gets shot at back and he, like, rubs one of the tally marks off. <laughs> so there's, like, a good – there's, like, a long – not a long, but there's, like, a section of it that's just that. That's just sort of, like, his kind of, like, minutiae day-to-day life in the trench. And then – he volunteers for a, a like a, a dangerous mission behind enemy lines, and we cut to him dressed as a tree, <laughs> looking like Groot, or or tree beard. Um, and he, uh, yeah, and and he's dressed as a tree so convincingly that the dumb Germans uh, just can't even uh, detect detect that there's a face in it. <laughs> that was one of the images that I. I was I had seen before of just like him dressed okay. as a tree walking around. They get some really good bits out of him, you know, people kind of walking near him and then him just like bonking them on the head and then turning yeah, back he, into he, a tree. He again. does a lot of a lot of head bonking in this movie. <laughs> uh, he finds the the bombed out house where the the French woman shows up uh, and kind of nurses his wounds in a very. Uh, I guess that's a bit of a cliche of like. The soldier goes in the house and, like, a beautiful yeah. woman appears. <laughs> what luck. And there's some kind of language barrier jokes, which uh, I guess play well. I, I have it written down, which play well in silent film. I don't remember if that's sarcastic or not. <laughs> uh, but then the Germans show up and they have to escape. Or he escapes uh, and your provides is captured by the Germans. And so then he has to uh, follow them back to their, their headquarters and he comes down a chimney and burns some some butts with a hot poker and then classic the, charlie chaplin butt humor yeah loves that <laughs> then uh the kaiser himself shows up and there's there's some some antics involving uh charlie chaplin pretending to be a german officer like the the officer he like puts on a uniform and acts like a, a fancy officer guy which is also like such a classic war movie thing of like put on the uniform and like yeah they're a little short like, for a stormtrooper yeah yeah exactly that's like such a such a thing they both disguise themselves and they kidnap the the kaiser and uh bring home the bacon as it says in one of the intertitles 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and basically, like, like it's like, oh, they kidnapped the Kaiser and won the war. And then it's the last scene is him waking up in the tent that he went into sleep at the beginning. His uh, Sydney Chaplin plays both the um, the Kaiser and also like the American sergeant that um, is kind of drilling him at the beginning. Fun mm-hmm. movie. So another uh, World War One related uh, short that we watched was the sinking of the Lusitania. Uh, by Windsor McKay, uh, which is wild. It is pretty wild for a couple of reasons. I mean, the usual kind of reason of Windsor McKay animation being very elaborate. Like, yeah, crazy how, I don't know, it, it, it is both, I feel like his animation is both uh, kind of, um, you can kind of see the seams of it a little bit more than like, Later animation, I'm thinking of the, like, 1940s and 50s, I guess. Sure. Um, but at the same time, it it's, like, I don't know, the scope of it is really impressive. This is some of the most lavish animation I've ever seen. Yeah. And I think it is, it's, like, he's not taking, he hasn't figured out the usual shortcuts that they found out in animation later. It's, like, oh, we can do this, and, like, we can do, like, four frames and repeat them, and it'll look fine. Whereas he's individually drawing every single frame and so yeah. the the motion is like incredibly smooth, but it is also you can really kind of see that they're like individual drawings, I guess, in a way. Yeah. Like you can kind of see the, uh, yeah, you can, you can see behind the technique of it a little bit more, I think, than than later animation. Well, you say that, but apparently, what something that I read is that uh, Windsor McKay uh, pioneered the idea of looping animation. Um, and it's just that he didn't use it as much as other people would mm. have. Um, yeah. Uh, he got some of his buddies to animate the water, I believe, in this. Um, and the water was uh, was a looping animation. Um, but but still. Still. I mean, it, the fact that the water is animated to the degree that it is, either way, if it's looping yeah. or not, it's still like, holy mackerel, this is really... A lot. <laughs> so, like, true to the name, this is about the 1915 sinking of the Lusitania, uh, mm-hmm. which we talked about uh, a few episodes ago. But uh, uh, the Germans uh, torpedoed a civilian ship, and McKay was very mad about it. Uh, but William Randolph Hearst, uh, who owned Windsor McKay, as far as uh, as far I as own you. <laughs> I'm sure he said that at some point. He probably did. <laughs> is the thing, you know, for working in his newspapers, he wasn't. Uh, Hearst wasn't about joining America, joining World War One, and so he forced Windsor McKay to draw anti-war and anti-British cartoons, uh, like editorial cartoons for the papers. Um, but McKay was so like pro World War One. Uh, on his own time and with his own money, he uh, made this movie uh, by himself with a little assistance from from some artist buds, uh, and it took him 22 months to make this. Um, and this was also, you're talking about these time-saving measures. Uh, he did adapt one of them, which is that uh, he, this was his first movie to use cells, uh, uh, animation cells, instead of uh, like rice paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, which so he was individually redoing every background for every shot uh, in his earlier films. Insanity. 
this also has his like whole like framing device that he loves to do again right it is i think and it's another one of those things where we don't even think about how early this is where it's like they have to old cartoons feel they need to explain what animation is lest the audience's mind be too blown it's like it's just drawings like here's how we did it (laughs) Don't freak out. Yeah, like, up front, they're like, this is a bunch of drawings that we put together, and it looks like it's moving. Like, that's what you're seeing. I can't tell if it's that or if it's, like, Windsor McKay trying to, like, hype himself up. You know? I think it might be a bit of both, of being like, yeah. look how much work this was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it. Pro- I'm sure that's also a part of it, but I, I find that very interesting of just watching, like, the the early early animation that we've watched and it's it's always sort of in some sort of framing device of like here's a guy drawing all the drawings and it's like right yeah we it's you know from a modern perspective it's like yeah i know what animation is <laughs> but they didn't back then because it was a new thing this i was talking about in soldier arms i feel like it kind of it functions as as kind of more one propaganda but it also kind of it doesn't feel overtly propagandistic if that's a word which i don't think it is no it is um sure whereas uh singing of lusitania very much does it is very propaganda e, uh which is not a word that one's not no it's it's real it's really hitting you hard in the face with like the germans are terrible yeah. look at what they've done yeah, I mean, besides all the other stuff about this movie, it is, like, very propagandistic, including, like, a sort of ending title card. That, uh, you I know, wrote that it, down because it is yeah. wild. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, it shows you just all of this, like, suffering and horror through the whole short. And then it says, the man who fired the shot was decorated for it by the Kaiser, all caps. And yet they tell us not to hate the Hun. Uh, <laughs> Also, just, like, there's something so kind of, I guess, archaic about the word the Hun. It it really kind of yeah. captures this in, like, the time period. Also, every, every time I see it, I have to, like, think, like, is this racist? I'm not sure, you know? I mean, I think it was back then. I think it's it's almost so archaic now that it is, like, it's like, wait, what? Like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> There's a lot of things in these old silent movies. I'm like, I know this is a little racist, but I don't know exactly how racist it is. <laughs> Remember when we were kind of shocked by how unracist stuff was in the beginning? And that's starting yeah. to not be the case so much anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's they, they, they started to really kind of let their, you know, let their flag fly a little bit more. I think Thanks, these, DW. These old-timey old uh, filmmakers. Yeah. That, honestly, that probably did not help. <laughs> it for sure did not. But yeah, uh, very good animation. Very uh, heavy propaganda from yeah uh, the time period, but um, we're I mean worth watching either way. Like, I think so. Especially I mean I've I've actually seen this one before in an animation class that I took, um, and seeing it again just as a work of animation is kind of amazing. There are camera angles that I don't know. There's that, like moving like, objects where it's like things that I know are very difficult to do in animation of like cameras yeah. moving around objects moving cameras it's like a lot of that is in here yeah it's it's very showy like the they're they're like really it's it's also like pretty horrific too um you know you're seeing like death and like people falling off the uh, you know falling off the boat into the water and people drowning you know it's it's pretty rough <laughs> yeah it's really it is 
very much designed to make you upset and to like get uh, an emotional reaction out of the audience i think a much less emotional movie the ghost of slumber mountain <laughs> a much less emotional movie but uh uh a no uh no less important animation wise no yes. no less uh uh interesting animation that is a much better uh a segue <laughs> <laughs> yeah, The Ghost of Slumber Mountain, which is uh, directed by Willis O'Brien, who is best known for doing the stop-motion animation of uh, King Kong. Um, and we covered one of his earlier uh, stop-motion shorts already, yes. um, involving prehistoric creatures and such. Um, <laughs> this one, though, is combined with live action in interesting ways, which I don't believe had been done uh to this degree at the very least mm-hmm. this was originally 40 minutes long only about 15 are watchable oh wow i didn't realize i didn't know that i didn't know it was that i didn't know that there was so much lost right it doesn't feel that incomplete is the thing it feels like a complete yeah. film like you watch it and you're like oh yeah this make it doesn't feel like there's any egregious things missing out of it but mm-hmm. apparently it was it, there was a lot of of additional footage that uh, has been either was cut out earlier or has been lost or through various things. Oh wow, yeah. It's nothing a step up from Willis's first first film from 1915. Uh, this was commissioned and produced by Herbert M. Dolly, who ended up taking most of the credit for it and the money. <laughs> Both of them appear uh, in the film as actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dolly as the lead. Uh, an explorer named Jack Holmes, which is a good explorer <laughs> name. Um, and O'Brien plays Mad Dick, the titular ghost. <laughs> which is one of the... It's like, uh, don't giggle. Like, it's the olden times. They had different slang words. It's short for Richard, okay? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. And I'm just going to pause to say that one of the things that jumped out at me the most about this movie is how gay it is. Oh, yeah. Like... And it's one of those things where I'm like, I can't tell if this is intentional or not. I can't tell either, but like, I'm just wondering, like, are we trying to be told something here? You know, right? And well, that was apparently that was even at, at like at the time, there was a sort of, an, a, according to uh, the author Christopher Workman, some of the cuts down from the original forty minutes may have been done to avoid any homoeroticism and that's based entirely off one of the remaining scenes yeah i can't tell if it's if it's like willis o'brien is like hey trying to you know put some you know something for the fellows here um and uh and dolly was like no 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 none of that (laughs) which is kind of the impression that i get from this sort of like i guess the the contemporary sort of writings about this movie but Hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll say that, you know, he, he, quote, he thought of Mad Dick as he uh, fell asleep by the fire. And there is a scene where um, the main character and and the kind of secondary explorer, uh, he's trying to paint the scene that they that they get to. And he, he, quote, tried to get Joe to remove his clothes and pose as a fawn. Uh, And he's like, and his excuse was, his excuse for... um, not taking his clothes off was that the skeeters are too thick yeah um which again is like is this just old timiness where they like weren't they just 
weren't as like aware or sort of it's almost the sort of thing where it's like in a modern context there's enough like weird homophobia around something like that that it's like no no no, we can't have that people will think it's too gay whereas i don't know if in 1918 if that was even a concern but i don't know maybe it was yeah um i like to think that it's that it's a gay dinosaur movie i always want to assume that it's intentional in every instance yeah um because that just makes it more interesting and a better piece of filmmaking i think oh, in pretty much yes. every in pretty much every uh example that we've come across <laughs> but yeah this movie's got dinosaurs in it um this about explorer goes out into you know up to slumber mountain to find a ghost um and the ghost kind of reveals ways to look into the past to see the dinosaurs when the dinosaurs start kind of bleeding through to the present and chasing and eat jack holmes and it's you know there's a there's a t-rex in this movie yeah the uh barnum brown who uh is credited with finding the first fossils of tyrannosaurus rex was consultant on the film which i thought was very interesting that already like one of the earliest dinosaur movies they were like we need a real dinosaur guy to come in and like explain what's what you know yeah uh, mr dna (laughs) it is similarly to soldier arms ends with a it was all a dream which is such a i'm not a fan of the it's it was all a dream it's a a bad yeah it's bad bad. uh it's it's almost never done well um but this movie does have uh stop motion dinosaurs in it which is super cool yeah so i think i think it's um I think that like one of my, you know, the 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 animation's all quite good, but uh, I really liked that there was, um, in particular, one of the uh, Triceratops that uh, had like a breathing belly. Like at, yeah. at, at every point where it was moving, it was doing sort of a naturalistic breathing, and it so it it really like lent a lot of life to it that um, something that you know that it otherwise wouldn't have had. That's where uh, Spielberg got the idea for uh, the uh, Triceratops breathing in Jurassic Park. He'd never heard of breathing before. Yeah, no. <laughs> Dinosaurs never breathed before this movie. Um, <laughs> All right. And now uh, we got we got one last short to talk about. Speaking of uh, <laughs> of Speaking intentional of... <laughs> intentional homoeroticism or not. Yeah, seriously. Uh, good segue. <laughs> I, l- I love when we can do a good segue. It's yeah. always very satisfying. It, it is. It is indeed. It's called "I Don't Want to Be a Man," which. From the title, you can tell that something gay is happening. <laughs> <laughs> My first note on this is very funny, very gay. Which it is. It is, I think this is, of all the movies that we've watched, this is probably the most explicitly gay movie. Where it's yeah. like, it is part of the plot, kind of. Um, it's not like, oh yeah, two ladies dancing and like maybe giving a little smooch. Right. This is like, no, 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 this is you know well it's 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 weird because it's it it almost fully commits to it and then i feel like kind of at the last minute kind of falls back on being very heteronormative at the very end unless they're both by <laughs> true but i think it's it's interesting that it, it's like it's pushing up against what i assume were the the kind of social norms yeah um i mean this was this was a german film right yeah 
my understanding of of Germany during this time period comes mostly from the Netflix show Babylon Berlin, which is set in the twenties. So I don't really know how how uh, how like social norms differed uh, in Germany versus the U.S. Well, from what I've heard, and you know, I I don't know certainly, but um, Germany was one of the more free places as far as queerness went up until the Nazis kind of put an end to all of it. That's um, definitely the impression that I got from watching the Netflix show. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what? how most people learn history now is watching Netflix shows. Yeah. I mean, right off the bat, I feel like this doesn't feel like the American comedies that we've been watching. I think both in terms of the style and the subject matter. It, it is very funny, um, yeah. but it, uh, it's not slapstick, really. Yeah, it's like it's more like sitcom, like funny situations yes. and like Hijinks. how are they gonna get out of this? Um, so uh, we meet uh, a young woman, uh, Aussie, I guess is how you pronounce her name. I don't know what the correct German pronunciation is. Yeah, I'm gonna say Aussie, Aussie as Aswalda, uh, who is a young woman who likes to drink and cuss and gamble. <laughs> and her uh uncle um and governess uh don't like that she is not very ladylike yeah. so they hire a uh tutor i guess guardian yeah they call it a guardian yeah whatever sort of weird social construct that was in germany at the time <laughs> um to teach her proper manners and there is immediate like sexual tension with this tutor coming in and like being very strict and telling her what she can't do and it's like a weird, like, dom-sub thing from the get-go. Where it's like, this is already weirdly sexual. <laughs> That's funny. Not explicitly, but there's it's just... It's an there's energy. A, it's there's a, a weird energy right from the beginning. Exactly. I think, like, one of my biggest laughs from the movie, which she's already kind of established as this sort of spunky, rebellious kid, and, uh, and then, like, she, this kind of stuffed-up guy comes to uh, be her guardian... And then she just like points at him and she's just like, oh, so you're the one who's in, a in for a rude awakening, you know? <laughs> and and I thought that she like had like such a good look on her face when she did it. Like it was it was a really good like comedic acting, I thought. Yeah, there's a lot of very good uh, silent movie acting in ways that are not sort of like the wild, like Whoa, throwing plates up in the air. Like, yeah, yeah. there's like good little character moments like that. Mm -hmm. So Aussie decides that... Uh, um, she doesn't want to be told what to do and that societal rules for women are bullshit and goes and buys a tuxedo in a tailor shop full of yeah. horny dudes. <laughs> and there's a lot of very... This is like the slapstickiest scene in the whole movie of like... Right. There's all the guys like turning and looking at her and still continuing to work but they're all messing up what they're trying to do so they're all like throwing pants to each other and missing and like <laughs> the pants are landing on each other's heads and they're you know... And they're all, like, um, kind of clamoring to be the one to get her measurements, and they, they split it up, and they say, like, oh, I'll get her arm, I'll get her other arm, you yeah. know? Um. Uh, <laughs> I thought a, a sort of key line, as far as the queerness of this, too, uh, is that when, you know, she's feeling restricted by all of the, um, uh, all of the stuff that, you know, is being put on her as a woman, uh, uh, right before she decides to make this choice to dress up as a man, she says, why didn't I come into this world as a boy? Um, yeah. So, something to chew on there. Um, yeah. 
there's there's a lot of that in, in this movie of <laughs> yeah. that kind of like masculine and feminine definition mm-hmm. and kind of the societal uh like things put on both of those it's a movie um, that is um that is about the restrictions of patriarchy on men and women yeah um and so she dresses up in a tuxedo and he's like going out and a man like as a, a man about town um and it's like immediately chastised for not being manly enough um and there's like she's on the the like the tram or the uh the streetcar or whatever and it's like they're like oh like you're supposed to sit up for a lady you know you're supposed to give a lady your seat like what are you doing and there's yeah. like she's like oh i have to like be chivalrous now god damn it um <laughs> uh but so she, she goes to the club and there's this sort of thing where it's like oh yeah the ladies just sort of like give their coat to them to the men and the men all like go to the coat check with all the ladies coats and so suddenly she's like having to like wait at the coat check with all the other dudes uh and she's like god i can't i want to just go in like i have to like wait in line now what is this (laughs) um it walks this this movie like you know uh, this at this point in the movie i was realizing that the i don't want to be a man is kind of referring to because it's this series of her going like wow men have it tough actually you know which it it is a fine line to walk it Um, is (laughs) uh, (laughs) because what they're doing is that they are pointing out actual inequities in society uh and and ways that um are that that men are told to be from a perspective of patriarchy that are restrictive on men and those are the things that she is feeling but the overall thing that is sometimes coming across is that men have it rough you know which is not necessarily i mean i i think that that's definitely there are sections of the movie that are kind of getting at that just to kind of even it out i guess but i think that the overall comedy too i mean the overall thing that i got from the movie is just like gender is a construct and it's dumb is like yeah, that seems yeah. like the main point that this movie is kind of trying to make from a hundred years ago you know <laughs> yeah um she runs into the 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 guardian her guardian at the club uh who doesn't recognize her and thinks he's she's uh another man in a tuxedo and they both get super drunk and start making out <laughs> <laughs> and then they, that, they that's s- true they switch coats and end up in each other's houses and have to like sneak back to each other's houses because they're like oh what happened and so then like as they're kind of trying to like sneak back into each other's house they like see each other again and the 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 ruse is revealed um and then they just kind of continue making out and having like a weird power dynamic kink thing happening (laughs) (laughs) but it does it does sort of it, it comes back it like starts with them both in their corners of like there's a man, he's got all his masculine shit going on. There's a woman, she's got all her feminine shit going on. They kind of meet in the middle of, like, abandoning all of that. And then yeah. they kind of, in the end, kind of return to their corners a bit. Right, because, I mean, in the end, she takes the drag off. And um, and they kind of fully understand what their dynamic is once he sees her kind of half in drag and half not in drag um and then he realizes that it was her that he was hanging out with the whole night and that they can just get together in a 
uh, societally acceptable heterosexual way. I thought it was interesting also that uh, the way, <laughs> you know, they get drunk and they start making out, but like they get drunk because uh, she starts kind of messing with him because she kind of like resents him for ha- for being the, the one who's going to get her in line as a, as a you know, a, a, a ladylike person. Um, so she starts like messing with his date or whatever. And then oh, yeah, right, yeah. they, and then like they, uh, he's like he com- flirting, he's flirting with a woman. Right. And then she's yeah. like trying to steal the woman away. Exactly. Well, while she's in drag. So her, uh, the, the guy comes over and then tries to like start a fight or something like that. And then while he does, uh, the, 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 the lady that he's coming on to and like, is already kissing another guy and they the, the the you know the aussie and the um the guardian they look at each other and they go oh women and then they, <laughs> and then they they bond uh in a in a masculine way by smoking cigars and and <laughs> drinking lots of champagne and so they get so insanely drunk and their their bonding is so masculine that they just have to make out yeah. is, is what happens <laughs> what you have to do i guess that's all the shorts that we watched. Time now for our feature presentation. And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. Thank you uh, for that music. Are you thanking yourself? Oh, yes. Okay. No. <laughs> all right. The music. So we watched a couple of features because they're still somewhat short. <laughs> um, yeah. They're what... not like intolerance length. Right. Uh, D.W. Griffith, speaking of intolerance, did release a movie this year called Hearts of the World, which is a World War One sort of big budget war propaganda movie. There's no good release of it anywhere online, including like Paramount Plus and things like that. Um, so I only I watched the first like 15 minutes, which is the prologue, um, and that was enough for me. Uh, thank you very much, because <laughs> this movie has a little prologue, which it apologizes for more than once. It opens with a title card saying, We beg your indulgence for this short prologue. It has no possible interest, save to vouch for the rather unusual event of an American producer being allowed to take pictures of an actual battlefield. Cut to D.W. Griffith in a trench with a camera. Cut back to title cards, apologies, and thanks. The picture follows. (laughs) It's almost like, this is my take, it's almost like, D.W. Griffith forced someone to add in a prologue to show how cool he was for going to a trench to get actual footage of the war. And he's like, no, you have to put this in at the beginning. And they're like, he made us do it. We're sorry. Just like, just watch it. So we'll show it up. (laughs) (laughs) It's short. Don't worry about it. Like, it'll be over very quick. It's so apologetic in the title cards. It says apologies and thanks. The picture, you know, it's like, please just like watch this so that he'll shut up about it. Um, that's all I want. After that, I was like, well, after that, you know, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> also terrible video quality, but. And we don't need any more DW Griffin. No, it's like, we know we need, his whole, you know? we know his whole deal at this point. Is, yeah, unless he comes out with another movie that is like very, you know, important in quotes. We did watch some other films. Which one would you like to discuss first? Uh, why don't we start with The Outlaw and His Wife? Another uh, film from Victor Sjöström. Sjöström. Victor Sjöström. This is another one of his 
uh, family man uh, goes to jail with a good heart, goes to jail, he is struck yeah. with tragedy, and then turns gray and becomes a shell of themselves movies. Correct. Yeah. Very similar <laughs> to uh, to the last one. Um, I mean, this is this is uh, based, I guess, loosely on a true story from mm-hmm. 19th century Iceland. And it's another kind of folk tale kind of story where he's taking yeah. an existing thing and, and dramatizing it. Um, weird that I did not pick up on all of those similarities, though. It is, yeah, very, very similar in a lot of ways to, to his last movie. Um, um, uh, or the last yeah, movie that we watched, was, yeah. I should say. There is a vagabond right off the bat. Uh, Victor Shostrom plays uh, a wandering stranger who comes to town. Uh, and he, he introduces himself as Cotty. We find out later that his name is Avind, uh, which is the name of the actual person that it was based on. Mm, yeah. And he is a, a runaway thief from the South. And it, it, initially when he comes to town, uh, everyone... Uh, you know, kind of trusts him and and uh, and sees him as a, a, a hardworking guy, and they send him to a woman named uh, Hatla uh, yeah. uh, to uh, to work for her. Uh, but somebody recognizes him from the south of Iceland uh, as, yeah. as a thief. Um, it is kind of crazy. I think in this movie is that he is. It shows that he stole a sheep to feed his like starving family yes that's his big crime which is a very sort of Lim miserable-esque like the most well-intentioned crime possible yeah you know he, he stole the sheep from an asshole priest too yes <laughs> um who's got tons of sheep yes and he went and he went and asked for it's like please my family's starving can i have a sheep and he's like no <laughs> And so, yeah, it's sort of he's he's thrown in jail. And it, what's wild though is that, so I mean, we're kind of skipping to like the second half of the movie here. Once it's like he's found out and he has to go on the run. He's living up in the, um, him and Hatla are living up in the in the mountains. Um, but they they like send a posse after him. They're like bloodlust, like trying to <laughs> murder him. Like he's a thief. Yeah. We have to hang him or whatever. And it's like, he stole a sheep. Like, what? They're acting yeah. like he's a serial killer. And they like they hate him so much for this crime of stealing a sheep that they're willing to, to risk their own lives and also try to murder him and Hatla over the fact that he is an escaped thief. They, they do love sheep in Iceland. But, I mean, considering that when I was there, they just kind of roamed all over the place and walked through the road. I don't know, like, how much a random sheep going <laughs> missing is a big deal. Um, one fun detail of his uh, escaping from jail, though, is that uh, he escapes by pulling the bars off his window. <laughs> just with his hands. Yeah. Because um, he's, a, he's a, a strong, handsome boy. I like how it doesn't remark on that Superman-esque feat. No, it does. It does mention like more than once that he's like, oh, he's like a strong lad. Like they they do kind of talk him up as he's like, uh, you know, a, a strapping fella, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's I guess it's that's part of it is that like, oh yeah, he's like works on a farm. He's strong. He can pull the bars off a window. <laughs> off a jail cell. I guess the bar for being an outlaw. In 19th century Iceland was just a lot lower back then. There weren't enough crimes. So it's like you stole a sheep and suddenly you're public enemy number one. 
Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I can mention that I went to the Icelandic Museum of Witchcraft and Sorcery, and uh, it was uh, Iceland is the place where the most male witches were burned. Uh, so, but like they mm. they were serious about their like punitiveness. You know, they like they were like burning witches, kind of not just in like a bout in uh, in the 1600s. They were burning them like consistently for Ooh, centuries. <laughs> Yikes. He wasn't a witch, but you know he was a a a ne'er do well according to the the yeah Icelandic authorities. I mean, solo sheep. Um, so they they we run off to the hills. There is like a fair amount of things that happen kind of in the village before this, but it's you know it's like they gets in a fight with the sheriff, and there's like a, he wants to marry Hathla, but she refuses. Um, but then they they run off into the hills uh, as outlaws. Five years pass. Of them living up in the mountains. Yes. And uh, we, we sort of come back to them uh, with a child. Um, They're living off the says, land. They're happy. Uh, it says, there was a great desert in their souls. Which I'm like, same. <laughs> Guess they're not that happy then. <laughs> yeah, we see Chekhov's cliff. Which is like, there's a massive cliff right next to the house that they live on. I'm like, oof, that cliff though. um someone's going over that it turns out it's the worst possible answer to who goes over that cliff uh which i also kind of assumed a friend of theirs shows up but kind of and is staying with them but kind of starts lusting after hodla kind of looking down her shirt and shit like that just being a real creep it's weird to have like a point of view cleavage shot in a movie like this you know yeah but then uh uh the sheriff finds him and uh, a weird thing happens at this moment. So, they, like, a posse shows up to presumably murder them. And Hatla, to, I guess, protect her child from the mob, throws them over the cliff. Uh, which I don't really understand the logic behind of, like, oh, you're going to kill my kid, huh? Not if I do it first. <laughs> And uh, Ivan kills uh, Bjorn and the sheriff um, in, a, in a, the ensuing fight. And so now they're childless and even have even more of a desert in their souls, presumably. And we kind of time jump again to them being old and gray and living in a little hut during a snowstorm and kind of bickering. They're now very bitter and childless. Particularly um, bitter and maybe ambiently bitter because of the fact that they committed babyside but uh yeah. but like particularly bitter because that you cut to them having been stuck inside as you know fugitives from society uh and have been seven days without any food in the snowstorm yeah that'll that'll do it uh for sure also there is some some really very effective i think but simple use of editing when it just it cuts we cut back to them in this section to when they were like young and happy and we see them without all the old age makeup and it's like just the contrast of that is um, so immediately kind of arresting and like oh boy you know the ravages of time all that stuff you know (laughs) or it's like just that very simple sort of like cut back to earlier in the movie um just to kind of show the progression is is uh is really good his uh uh schistrom's movies really seem to have like a, a life scale scope to them yeah, they are very much about a life. 
Yeah. Um, as opposed to just like a a, a week or a night or like you know. The, the time frame a lot of these other movies is very short, comparatively. Which, I mean, you know, it's not Schustrom's movie, but um, I believe it was the last movie that he was ever in, uh, as an actor, was Wild Strawberries, which kind of gets at similar themes of, like, yeah. a, a long-lived life, you know? Yeah. Age, the ravages of time, all that stuff. <laughs> these people get ravaged by a snowstorm, because uh, they, after, after arguing and realizing that they're on the brink of death, uh, Hatla uh, suggests that they go out into the snow to die together because there's no way that they're going to survive. Um, and uh, Avend uh, does not like kind of kind of says no. Uh, he doesn't, you know, he wants to keep trying. She has kind of made her decision, and so when he goes out to get uh, some firewood, she uh, steps outside. Into, and then kind of lays down in a snowbank and uh and and starts to die she sees a vision of the dead child and then avond sees that she's missing runs after her and then dies with her uh and there's a title card that says death forgave them yeah there's another title card that says love was their only law which is uh a nice bit of po- a very poetic way to end the movie Love was their only law. Really sounds like a tagline to uh, Bonnie and Clyde. It 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 sounds like the tagline to a kind of like slightly trashy, uh, like chase <laughs> movie. Yeah, one of the last shots of the movie is a shot of their frozen corpses facing each other, and it made me say "Holy shit!" out loud. I was like, "Damn, this is." It's like "Holy shit!" This is a very dark bummer ending. Yeah. Um, which I did not fully expect from this movie. This really goes really. It goes hard, uh, yeah. in the last like third of it. It's it's a real tragedy. I mean, I think this movie was quite well put together. Yeah, I think that Schustrom's like a, a pretty good filmmaker. Uh, from what I've seen so far, it told this story very well. A lot of like twists and turns, and you know, you kind of felt like you were you were there with them. <laughs> yeah, I I a couple of just like filmmaking things that stuck out to me is is the editing. I think there was some really, um effective use of adding here especially with like the non-linear stuff at the end of like mm-hmm. showing at the beginning again is always kind of a an effective tool and then also just like i think th- i think there was a lot of this in um a man there was also of like just good uses of of close-ups and like when to punch into like just a a good kind of portrait shot um mm-hmm. which i think are are well well shot in a way that i think a lot of other i don't know just the the use of kind of light and and framing and things like that in this just yeah. feel very very dramatic a, light dramatic uh, just a bit more expressionistic um mm-hmm. than a lot of the american movies that we've been watching yeah and i think so as an nice... actor too in those close-ups yeah. um he's really good at anguish uh Shostrum, you i know? mean that's his kind of his main thing in in both of <laughs> these two movies that we've watched of his yeah <laughs> a lot of anguish and so yeah he uh he 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 gets that across very well it's true without like it is definitely silent movie acting but it is i think very good silent movie acting what do you want to start with and what do you want to end on here mm, well we could stay in the scandinavian region and talk about uh the danish space opera Himmelskibet. <laughs> <laughs> we got to go with those segues whenever possible. Himmelskibbit. 
or a trip a trip to mars is the english title but i like him we'll skip it <laughs> I, I do too which shares the name of a uh of a ride at uh at like a, a it it shares the name of a ride at a, an amusement park in copenhagen i believe it means like rocket ship basically <laughs> um skibbit we were like nearly done with like picking what movies we watched and then i saw this movie i saw like what the outfits of these characters right. were wearing and i said glenn we need to watch this movie you need to watch this movie glenn True. you have a poster of the rocketeer behind you right now <laughs> he's pointing it to it if, yeah. if you're listening to the podcast yeah some good uh sort of like retro futuristic fashion in this movie for sure i mean this is like a pretty proper space opera in in ways that i think are more more in line with what i think of that genre being than like a trip to the moon for sure there are some like kind of interesting i mean i don't know if this movie was meant to have any kind of reference to trip to the moon uh, in the original language because it was just called Himmelskibbit and not right. uh, and not a trip to Mars, uh, which is which it shares the title with a kind of crappy Edison movie from like <laughs> eight years before. Um, but th- it does have some kind of reminiscences of uh, of a trip to the moon, uh, particularly in the fact that all of the people have very silly names uh, like yes. Professor Dubious and Corona Planeteros. <laughs> I had to, yeah, I got, we got to talk about Professor Dubious. I have it written down. Always trust a guy named Professor Dubious. <laughs> Very trustworthy sounding fella. Um, which he turns out to, you know, be exactly what he sounds like. Um, I, I do love names like this in, in silent movies where they're just like, I don't know, this guy's a villain. What's his name? I don't know, Professor Dubious. Like, <laughs> there's sort of a, a, a cartoon logic to them that I, I really enjoy. No, I like that too. The basic arc of this is that uh, there's a young, uh, like a kind of flyboy son of a, uh, of a, st- a scientist who has decided that he wants to build a spaceship and go to Mars. He spends two years building a ship and gathers a team a ragtag team and they say goodbye to earth and launch off to mars they spend six months in space and are almost driven to to mutiny drunken space mutiny yes they land on mars uh they discover that the martians are hippies who are <laughs> who are, are are extremely uh, uh advanced and in another kind of reminiscence or almost like a um almost like a deconstruction of uh the kind of semi-colonialist maybe satirical maybe not uh trip to the moon they come back and like bring peace to earth in a way yeah it, it is it is very much not a sort of tale of conquering the planets it is like there are civilizations beyond our own that exist in the stars that are like better and we should learn from them. I mean, yeah. Like speaking of, you know, uh, of um, the Schustrom movie uh, b- being such a kind of cynical movie. Uh, this is a really optimistic movie. I, I like this a lot. 
it is honestly it is so optimistic that my uh modern cynical brain was like when is the dark twist gonna come same same so after you know the space mutiny they they find they land on mars and they find yeah this sort of like very kind of hippie-esque like uh the martians have discovered I, the universal language that everyone can speak and understand yeah just naturally and it's like oh they they uh you know they there used to be you know wars and stuff on mars and they they've they've just they figured it all out they've they've solved you know world peace as it were on their planet there's this kind of thing where it's like oh yeah they land on a planet and they find this like seemingly utopian society where it's just like oh everything's great here like everything's yeah. fine everything work works out like here's all these beautiful things and like amazing technology and things like that and i was like when are they gonna find the bodies you know yeah it's you're like, waiting for like a seedy underbelly you're or waiting for them to be like oh just implant this slug in your brain you know yeah and it's like uh oh it, it's like he is injured let's eat him you know it's i i kept waiting for that to happen because that's every episode of star trek is that <laughs> every like 50 sci-fi movie is that and it just never happens it's just it 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 is exactly what it says on the tin you know which I, I thought it was great. I, I really liked that. Like, I was expecting I was expecting a seedy underbelly. I was expecting bodies. I was expecting a Midsummer-esque uh, uh, kind of... Uh. Well, you, you brought up Midsummer. There, I was... <laughs> I had so many Midsummer flashbacks during this. Because the, the closest thing it gets to a dark seedy underbelly is kind of a weird ritual sacrifice thing happening. Which is I don't very know. I, I think that you can interpret it in a nice that, way. That was definitely, I think, me projecting because I was already being like, this is a Scandinavian, this is like, it's shot in uh, Denmark, I assume. So it, it has this sort of like Northern European landscape and I'm, it's all sunny and everyone's in like flowing <laughs> clothes and I'm just like, yeah. these, when are they going to find the bodies, you know? These um, aliens are literally... Like, these Martians, they're literally walking around with flowers in their hair, flowy white dresses. Uh, they talk about peace and love. They're vegetarians. Yeah. Uh, like, it's kind of wild, like, not just how much they, you know, saw about the future, science fiction. They saw about the future, like, 40 years later. They, like, could d- depict what hippies were before yeah. they existed you well, know I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there were other like social movements before then that were like hey be one with nature and like chill out you know yeah <laughs> there's uh a repeated line in this movie which is love is the force you call god which i do actually think is a, is a very lovely sentiment yeah well i mean that was in a song that the aliens sang to the humans as they like left the planet and went back home mm-hmm. the, the song like had some good messages in it definitely like I, I wrote it down return with a stronger faith you're connected to the planet space is the mother of life embracing all our globes that's kind of a nice sentiment love is the force you call god bring back the message that we're all the same understand that we're all steps on the same ladder that leads to eternity love is the force that you call god our seeds we will sow on earth ridding you of your lowly speech flawlessness you you shall reach through the force of love love is the force you call god and that this is this is as they're walking into a ship that's covered like a a a brass spaceship that's covered in flowers yeah 
there is the aforementioned kind of weird ritual suicide thing happening that is not explicitly that but kind of has vibes of it <laughs> that's i mean that is the closest thing to a sort of dark underbelly to this movie um and it's mostly me projecting onto it projecting midsummer yeah yeah I, why don't you here's here's the thing though right is that so he the the main guy he falls in love with an alien naturally he sleeps under the tree of longing and then she tells him <laughs> that if he feels the longing in his dream then then the two of them were meant to be and you know he has a, a dream uh, that that means that they they get together so he kind of like asks her dad for who's like the the leader of the um, Martians uh, for his permission he's like yeah great they still hadn't utopian society still hadn't figured out that thing yeah <laughs> and he like when when he comes up to ask him her dad's like lying on a just like on a bench in the woods looking kind of like nearly dead and then he goes like that's great you guys uh i'm also having a good time because i'm about to make the journey into death he says i feel that my life is fulfilled and i'm ready for the happiness of death and then they do a whole party to celebrate his life and then he sails away on a boat to the undying lands and uh and arwen gets to stay with aragorn (laughs) (laughs) it's the undying lands it is not it's not midsummer face smashing (laughs) i i was already so reminded of midsummer at that point that i was just like oh my god Back on Earth, things are not so lovey-dovey. Uh, Professor Dubious is being a real asshole. So Professor Dubious shows up the, at the beginning. There's all this talk about, we're going to Mars, we're building a rocket, blah, 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 blah. And then there's this guy named Dubious who's like, no, you won't. It's not going to work. <laughs> and then back on Earth, we, we see uh, Professor Planeteros, the father of the kind of lead astronaut who went and fell in love with the Martian woman. Um has grown weak from stress he doesn't know if they if they made it or not he's sort of like they went off they left we don't know what happened and he's he, and so dubious shows up just to kind of gloat at him then you know news reaches them that uh the ship called the excelsior uh is on its way back and dubious is like oh, i always believed that they would do it um <laughs> and they're like no you didn't fuck off he does and then is promptly struck by lightning <laughs> While shaking his fist at the ship as it lands. He's definitely a mustache twirler. (laughs) I do think that's funny, though, that it's like this movie is so sort of like, oh, like peace and and togetherness and love. And it's like, this is what we need to embrace. And it's like, and then there's this one asshole that no one likes and he gets struck by lightning and dies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, It, it does seem to undermine its point a little bit. And the movie really is making a point about like you know it's the classic sci-fi thing to like comment on what earth is and everything like that but like the movie is very pointed in going like these aliens are doing it better than us and we need to learn from them uh like they're horrified at the idea that we harm and kill each other and that we eat meat and uh and when and even when there's like the humans like almost murder an alien and they uh, kill a bird that right. They they horrifies. Shoot a, they shoot a bird and then they throw a grenade at a guy. 
Yeah. Which makes me wonder, why did they bring grenades? <laughs> there could be hostile aliens. They don't true, know. True, true. I guess, you know, you never know. Could could be an ape planet. <laughs> but, you know, that like, these trigger-happy Danes are... Uh, are, are have done something so horrible it's been thousands of years since a shot has been fired on mars and everyone is so horrified and and like but instead of punishing them or forcing them to go away they take them to uh they take them to a place uh to be judged right and they think oh no someone's gonna sentence us again i was like oh my god what are they what is it gonna be and then it's just like no just like think about it you know think about what yeah they're 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 like no like you uh no you shall judge yourself only through self-knowledge can you atone for your sin and so they just like think about it for a while and they go like man we're really sorry you know (laughs) (laughs) they just very sheepishly come out of the the tribunal being like sorry guys yeah uh, so they throw their guns on the ground. They renounce killing of all creatures and their weapons. Uh, and the Martian that was grenaded uh, just from the good vibes comes back to life. <laughs> um, and then they're dressed in the robes of innocence from then on. But like key to this, uh, to my point from earlier, is that the astronauts are kind of astonished at this system of justice. And they think back to the way that criminals are treated on earth and uh and they think like how monstrous of us to lock people up in jail you know this is like an anti-carceral movie (laughs) so it's awesome yeah yeah i i do think uh while i i do like the um points this movie is is making i think it, it it is it is incredibly uh blunt um yeah it it doesn't really weave this stuff into the story so much as it just kind of has characters show up and and say them um i mean that's if i have a criticism of this movie it's definitely that that it is it doesn't really have a lot of uh dramatic tension in it other than like uh uh-oh what's gonna happen and it's like nothing bad everything's kind of (laughs) fine which is i mean certainly it is interesting to see just because it's like that's not normally how stories go and so it's like oh this is unexpected you know it lays it on pretty thick i Uh, guess i don't know i i don't mind things being blunt and i i i was refreshed at the optimism and i thought that it was actually dealing with like some more complex ideas than most stuff that i've like seen so far yeah for sure it is it is definitely a movie with kind of like philosophical ideas on its mind which Mm -hmm. isn't a lot of what we've watched (laughs) (laughs) i guess um or at least not to this degree where it it is also like very forward thinking i think not and not only in its kind of philosophy and its sort of like morals but also just in that it's a lot of the design and a lot of the kind of uh plot mechanics of it remind me a lot of like classic star trek Mm -hmm. i don't know if gene roddenberry ever saw this movie but it feels like a a very much a sort of like proto precursor to the kind of like idealistic sort of utopian ideas of of star trek yeah the effects also were quite good and they reminded me of like old melies effects and how we don't really see that much stuff anymore like they had 
mats that made it look like the, the they were looking out over the 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 sky like thousands of feet in the air while they were flying over it. They had superimpositions of the the ship flying through uh flying through the clouds and they had like a miniature earth and globe like globe yeah. in in space and and the, the the thing moving through space like it looked like space effects from many years later i think i i was also surprised at how the um degree to which kind of how much more scientifically accurate this movie is towards like space travel than yeah after to the moon where it's like we shot a big rock we shot a big can at the moon and a bunch of guys <laughs> in suits came out and like fought you know moon men whereas this is like no it takes a really long time you have to get in like a pressurized thing and you're going to be in there for a very long time and you can't leave and it's like the food isn't good and and like um and, and they were like calculating when mars is going to be closest to right Earth that too, too. The, the sort of like there's all this talk in the beginning of like planetary orbits and things like that where i was like oh this is like pretty they get it they know it's like up. hard sci-fi for the time yeah yeah i guess we, we haven't really watched a lot of like effects driven movies in a while yeah. um whereas I this miss is, is very much i'm i'm sure we got many more to come <laughs> Speaking of effects-driven movies, uh, the next one isn't one, but it is the highest-grossing film of 1918. Yes, uh, and also retained the number one most ticket sales of any movie f- up until 1937. Wow. This this shares the spot with of number one ticket sales with only four other movies. Uh, Gone Damn. with the Wind, uh, Snow White, which took the the crown from it, mm. uh, the Ten Commandments, and Sound of Music, though like and Mickey, this movie, wow. which are the only movies that have had the most ticket sales of any movie ever. Damn, yeah, truly, this was the Spider Man No Way Home of 1918. <laughs> Maybe it'll be dethroned. I doubt. I mean, it's it is wild how much going by ticket sales, like how much bigger movies were because they also played for so much longer you know mm-hmm. but yeah this this was also kind of a uh, a late edition where we're like we should probably talk about one of the biggest like blockbusters before blockbusters were a thing kind of like mm-hmm. mickey directed by f richard jones and james young and starring mabel normand and it is very much a, a mabel normand uh vehicle it is the only film produced under the mabel normand feature film company which was her, mm-hmm. like, label. She was like, I'm making movies for me. And <laughs> she got one, and it was, like, the biggest movie of the year. But it, I think it sat on the shelf for over a year. I think yeah. she shot it in, like, 1916 or 1917. I guess it's a, a rom-com, a screwball comedy of sorts. Yeah, I mean, well, it, sat, it sat on the shelf for so long because they didn't know what to do with it. Because this movie's like, a lot of different things. Um, right yeah it's got dark elements it's got sad elements it's got romance comedy you know uh but yeah at its root it is a kind of fish out of water story um Mm -hmm. a a fresh prince kind of scenario (laughs) uh where she goes into town and makes some trouble with a dog and uh she's sent off to her 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 aunt in uh in long island her rich aunt right. in long island yeah. you know oh uh, yeah it starts in like a like a mining town in california i immediately thought oh blake snyder would love this movie because she saves a cat right at the beginning of the movie 
We'll save the cat reference for all the screenwriting students out there. Not me. Blake Snyder, Blake Snyder wrote a book called <laughs> Save the Cat, where he's like, every movie should start with a character doing something good, like saving a cat. So then the audience will like them. Um, and it's kind of a, I don't know. It, I, I only know about it because I feel like a lot of screen screenwriters now are like, that's dumb. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff you guys talk about in your guild. Uh, I am not in the guild. Uh, I just <laughs> listen to uh, script notes a lot. I was thrown for a loop twice within the first minute of this movie because the mine that they work at is called tomboy mine which is must have meant something else uh and it's a boy named tom what are you talking about (laughs) um and then there are two characters named mickey the main character and then her like adoptive mom who is minnie like Mm. mickey and minnie in like in the same movie what what Oh, mayhaps, mayhaps. Mr. Mr. Disney took a few things from this film. I don't know. That's that's a, that's a that's a conspiracy theory to to throw out there. I mean, in a way, I wouldn't be surprised. Like this movie was huge, right? And yeah, like he, I'm sure he knew about it. Though they don't have a ton of scenes together, like maybe he just liked the way the two names sounded together. You know? Yeah. Yeah, you heard it here first, folks. Scoops. <laughs> There's a lot of machinations in this movie involving, like, mine ownership, um, yeah. which I didn't entirely follow. There is also, I mean, it's pretty fast-paced. There's a lot of there's a lot of stunts and sort of, like, fights and car chases and things, too. Mm-hmm. Falling off roofs, driving cars in front of trains. Yeah, it's like action set pieces in this too. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty. It it is like you said. Like, there's a lot going on, but it 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 has a kind of. It makes sense that this, that this movie made such an impact, I guess, or like made so much money that it it does kind of feel like one of those like four quadrant. You know, it's like it's got something for everybody. You know, it's got a little romance. It's got some comedy. It's got action. You know, it's got sad parts. You know, it's got it all. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I just thought of. It is like Spider-Man because it was a big blockbuster movie that came out during a pandemic. So here you go. Oh, yeah, true. Um, Yeah. It's also like Iron Giant in that a squirrel runs up someone's pants. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I was about to say that. (laughs) One thing that that, uh, uh, struck me about it is the editing is kind of weird. Hmm. There's a lot of sharp shots that look like they're about to do something cool and then it will cut away there's a lot of things where like it almost it looks like they're gonna do an iris in and then they'll cut away before it finishes and i'm like what let it finish you know or like there'll be the camera will start to move in a cool way and they'll cut away very quickly so i'm i'm wondering if this movie was at at one point recut or if it was just the editor didn't really know what they're doing as much the other thing that struck me about it i guess is just that uh mabel normand very good at her job yeah yeah I think she's very charming in this movie. Yeah. Uh, I feel like she's another kind of silent comedy star that I didn't... I had, like, a little bit of, like, a vague awareness of. Um, but once we started doing this, I wanted to watch more of her movies because I, I, she was, like, one of the biggest, you know, early movie stars, especially mm-hmm. in comedy. And yeah. I feel like gets forgotten about very, very easily. She was the original Melissa McCarthy. sure yeah it doesn't make any sense just a comedy lady (laughs) yeah 
something that I remember we saw, I think it was in the ocean waif, is um, there's a scene in this of a man sort of charmingly threatening a woman with a gun, which is like a silent comedy gag that I'm like, what? Whose idea was this? <laughs> I don't know if I have a lot else to say about it. It's it's fun. It's charming. Uh, Mabel Norman is very funny, and uh, I feel like it has a good sense of kind of naturalism also. Like, mm-hmm. that is always something that I think I think sticks out to me in silent movies is when people give really sort of naturalistic performances because it's not what we think of when we think of silent movies especially comedies we yeah. think of very big broad sort of pantomime things which there was a lot of in these movies but it's always nice to see that it isn't just that they're not on one on one wavelength the whole time yeah um yeah i liked it okay i thought um like most movies that are extremely popular, I feel like it it's it's got like broad appeal, I guess I'll say. Yeah. yeah. But yes, yeah, it's, it's a fun story. There's uh some good gags got out of um her uh kind of schisms between her and her uh rich cousins. Right. And then it has a happy ending where she becomes a millionaire. Yeah. But you'll have to watch to find out how that happens. The answer is <laughs> The answer is mine ownership machinations. Yeah, weird mine ownership stuff. <laughs> this is also another movie from 1918 about a young woman who gets yelled at for not being ladylike enough. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. was something in the zeitgeist for sure. That could have been our segue if we tied probably, this together. Probably would have been a better one than whatever one that we use. But you know what? <sighs> Live and learn. Well, I guess that'll do it. I think so. We talked about a lot of movies. 1918. It's a whole whole flu of them um oh <laughs> anyway uh what was your favorite glenn i mean probably put me on the spot now we ask this every time except i forgot to last time is true uh it is a thing that i think i came up with also um <laughs> i'm gonna go ahead and get and say soldier arms i guess okay i don't think i like that like head and shoulders above the rest but that one for whatever reason, just feels like the right answer. Did you like it like moment. shoulder arms above the rest? Sure, yeah. Come on, that was great. Anyway, I liked soldier arms a lot, and I I think at various times, because I watched them in this order, soldier arms was my favorite, and then I don't want to be a man was my favorite, because uh, I thought it was like really light on its feet, and it had some interesting ideas and good laughs, but you might have heard uh, gathered from how effusively I was talking about it, but I really liked Himmel Skibbit. I thought it was really cool. I I liked Himmel Skibbit. I didn't love it. <laughs> I think I think uh, I don't want to be a man. A dog's life and shoulder arms. I I hold around this like all three of those. I thought were were really solid, enjoyable movies. Nice. Well, uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. You can uh, subscribe to us on YouTube and and on your podcast app if you like uh you can follow us on the social medias which you can see in the description uh of either the podcast or the youtube and i hope you uh stick along with us on this journey and i hope you've learned something because uh, we Indeed. have well that'll be about it so glenn i'll see you next year see you next year Who's in the best